What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. There's an exciting trend in the format of graphic novels today. And that is taking stories that were first written as novels and remaking them into graphic novels. This transfer is in some ways like taking a novel and making it into a movie. The change from a fully textual format to one that adds images really adds something new and fresh to the story. I will also say that this change does fall prey to some of the same criticisms for book-to-movie adaptations especially when characters are not rendered as a reader imagined them, or parts of the story are adapted for the unique characteristics of the form. However, I will say that even with some of these pitfalls, graphic novel adaptations of children's novels are quite amazing. Visuals add depth and allow us to see our favorite characters and plots in a new way, so each format brings something unique to the telling. One set of graphic novels that children will most likely find exciting are the graphic novels based on Rick Riordan's series. The tales of Percy Jackson and all the other heroes of Olympus are richly rendered in these adaptations. And while they may cut a lot of the plot from the original stories, they still provide a rich visual foray into the creative world and characters that Riordan creates. Other wildly popular works like the Twilight series by Stephanie Meyer and the Infernal Devices series by Cassandra Clare have also been adapted into graphic novels. One of my personal favorite adaptations is of Madeline Langle's classic work, A Wrinkle in Time. Illustrated by Hope Larson, who creates her own graphic novels, this adaptation can really help readers visualize the complex physics of nonlinear time that Langle plays with in her story. Another of my favorites is the adaptation by P. Craig Russell of Neil Gaiman's award-winning book, The Graveyard Book. This story was split up into two volumes to allow the illustrators to cover more of the story with their fantastic pictures that really bring the amazing characters in this story to life. So if you're looking for a great graphic novel, or if you want to revisit an old favorite in a new form, then maybe it's time to take this suggestion from Rachel's World and check out a novel that has found its way into graphic novel adaptation. Learning to read involves a whole lot more than just words and letters. Here's an obvious example. Picture books. What child isn't well-served, motivated, and inspired to learn to read with a few illustrations on the pages? Perhaps less obvious is this matter of pursuing literacy and the support that can come from art, music, and dance. Today on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel Wadham visits with an enthusiastic advocate of combining art with a child's growth towards literacy. Enrique Feldman is an artist and educator who specializes in approaches to literacy that incorporate music and movement. Feldman is the former professor of music and education at the University of Arizona and was also assistant band director at the University of Wisconsin. Since 2001, he has been a presenter of keynotes, workshops, and coaching sessions for organizations of all types with a special focus on learning. Here's Rachel with Enrique Feldman. We're on the phone today with Enrique. Welcome, Enrique. Well, hello. I'm glad to be here. 
Enrique, I am just ecstatic to have you on the show today because you combine two of the things that I think I love the most in the world, and that is arts and literacy, and especially engaging those two things to help our children learn. So as we start our conversation today, tell us a little bit, how can we combine the arts and literacy to help support our children's learning, especially in those early pivotal years? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's what I really dive into almost on a daily basis, professionally and personally. And, you know, the arts provide opportunities for learning which are truly unique uh, and which also happen to be research-based. So some of them include, you know, the, the ignition of left and right brain function, and specifically what the arts do, and very specifically music, is it really impacts with frequency uh, the synaptical connections between left brain and right brain. And and, and then there's pattern recognition and pattern creation, which is everywhere. I mean, the ability to recognize pattern uh, anywhere in life, academic, you know, in, in school, and, and also in life and relationships. And uh, a quick story on that is uh, my wife's a pianist, and she's a, a country pianist, amazing uh, artist and educator. And she was asked, uh, how do you memorize all those notes after playing a, a concert? And it was a, a, a young student. And uh, so she said, well, I don't, you know, she didn't have a real good answer. And, and he, he asked, you know, how many notes are there? And so uh, they counted the, the notes on one page and multiplied times the number of pages. It was around 100,000 notes. Um, and, and she said, you know what? I don't memorize all the notes. I memorize about a dozen patterns. And so the arts provide that. The arts provide the recognition of a lot of layers of patterns. You know, it connects to critical and creative thinking perspective building, um, emotional intelligence uh, is, is impacted greatly by combining arts and literacy. And, and, and then if you want to get a little more abstract, it's, it connects to something that I think is really important. I call it the art of the unknown, and it has to do with how we think. But certainly the bridge between the arts and literacy is a very broad you know, bridge that allows for a lot of learning to happen. That comment you made about the art of the unknown, I think, is really intriguing. And I think that our listeners would be interested in having you expand on that a little bit. So could you tell us what do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's something that I I sort of grew up with, not realizing it. it, it those aren't the exact words that were spoken to me. I had an incredible grandmother, uh, and she was, um, even though she didn't have a lot of formal education, she taught me about the power of the mind. And so she taught me about the art of the unknown, even though she didn't use those words. So what I mean, you can look at it a lot of ways, but one of the things that I can share with the, your listeners and, and yourself is that we live in a world typically where, as adults, we want to know. <laughs> we, we want a plan, uh, we want to check out boxes, and we want to get things done. And, and there is a time and place for that, certainly. And that would be linear thinking, you know, and, and that's, that's a good thing. Again, it's needed. It is needed. Uh, but we, as we go from childhood into adulthood, we really forget, not forget, well, sometimes we do, but we use the other part of our brain a lot less, where it's about not only embracing unknown things, but seeking it. So it's the idea of curiosity. It's the idea of multiple perspectives. It's the idea of being an adventurer through life. And if you look at the best of us in humanity, uh, you look at people like uh, Da Vinci and uh, you, know, you know, people of that ilk, uh, they, they, they did that. They, they embraced the art of the unknown. And I'm sure they also bought their groceries. 
but, you know, they, they went after things that they didn't know about, and that kept them out of a rut. And that's sort of the key, is staying out of a rut and, and, and using routines to help ourselves, but not using routines to cramp our style and really undershoot what we're able to accomplish as human beings. This is wonderfully complex, and I love it because I think that sometimes we try to make things so tight and in a box, and like there's the arts, and there's the science, and there's this way of thinking and that way of thinking, and we don't often look at it this way about how integrative all of this is and how they all come together to really make this be an important part of who we are as people and how we interact with the world. Do you think that these kinds of ways of thinking are really those kinds of things that help children engage in all different kinds of learning? Absolutely. It's called transference of knowledge and transference of experience. So as a young boy, to make this real, you know, at age four and a half, I asked to study the piano and my parents luckily said, sure. And they bought an upright piano and I started practicing piano and and I loved it. And so back then, I thought I was just learning to play the piano, when in fact, I was learning many, many things through an artistic experience that impacted my, my, my mindset. It created a physiologically different brain. The study of piano and violin specifically do that. And, and, and the idea of work ethic, I mean, it, like you said, it's, it's so layered. And the idea of who are we, the idea of what it is to be a, a completely engaged human being, the, the arts remind us, uh, both in an abstract way and in a very linear way. If you want to look at the PET and MRI brain scans of uh, someone who's been involved in the arts a lot uh, compared to someone who is not, there is a very, there are a number of clear differences. So but what's really cool and exciting to me is the research has finally caught up with what all our grandmas knew, you know, <laughs> All our grandmas knew, hey, we want you to study a musical instrument. We want you to work hard. All these different things, compassion, kindness, you know, being self-sufficient. And the, the research is now showing that when you study a musical instrument, when you're involved in dance, you know, visual arts, whatever it happens to be, acting, that there are a lot of good things that happen. And that sort of leads me to the next you know, idea, which is you know, we do have a lot of uh, challenges right now in terms of um, how people are feeling disconnected in many ways. And really all of them, all of these challenges can be met um, in very holistic um, applications. Uh, And I have sort of put the, you know, I've sort of decided to walk the walk. About nine years ago, I became very serious about my health. Um, When my wife had a heart attack, she's fine. She recovered great. She was in her 40s. It was very unexpected. She was in very good shape. I was the one who was nine years ago, 80 pounds heavier. Uh, And so both related to physical and mental health, I started practicing what I was preaching a lot more. I mean, I was, but not as much as I do now. And so I've, I've experienced improvement with my own self um, and with many, many students all over the, the, this country uh, and, and in other countries. So it's, it's, it's really exciting to see that change happen. It is amazing to see how these kinds of things can make such a broad impact and We don't have time to explore them in great depth, but as we close up our conversation today, could you tell us what kind of future do you envision? Where would you like to see us go as as far as learning and the arts and literacy go? What's the direction you think we need to take? 
That's a fantastic question. Certainly, I'm an optimist, <laughs> and I'm an optimist in a very concrete way. That may seem sort of a paradox, but um, I, I spend a lot, most of my time, either working with young children, sometimes older students, working with teachers and parents who are interested in learning and uh, giving keynote presentations, that sort of thing. And the other half of my life, I spend uh, writing music and performing and conducting orchestras and musicals. So my perspective is a very positive one because I see on a daily basis what is possible from humanity. And so, but specific to your question, what I envision comes from my main mentor who passed away last year, who Utah may know, Dr. Carol Reinhardt, yes. who visited, visited um, a numerous times. I spent 14 years with him twice a month um, in deep conversation and more than conversation. A lot of what I'm doing today comes from our work together. And so what I envision is an educational community where we see the students as co-learners, co-authors, and co-researchers. And the way we get there certainly is by helping schools of all types, but we also have to help parents. And by that, I mean we have to extend the learning experience into the home. And by getting the parents, I mean millions of parents. And that's what I've been up to recently, finding ways to do that. Uh, and then more specifically, technically speaking, how do we help students we do that with something I call the art of the question, which is a concept. It's not a curriculum. We have plenty of those. Um, it's really more about how we connect. And so the kinds of questions we ask and do we leave enough time, really enough time for an actual response? Because as adults, we get very kind of uh, nervous with silence, which we don't hear a lot of in our world anymore. And silence is a beautiful thing. And what I, I, I call it something else. I think silence is the sound of thinking. And so if we can ask better questions and leave room for the sound of thinking, it's amazing what happens. I see it every day. So I, I know it works. Enrique, thank you so much. Here's hoping that our future will hold a lot more great questions and a lot more sounds of thinking to help us engage and make make our world a better place, which I think is is where we can be at if we engage in that way. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Enrique Feldman sharing his ideas about how combining the arts with reading can help children improve in their literacy. Next, Rachel talks with award-winning author Annette Lyon about her new book, Songbreaker, based on a folktale from the Finnish national epic poem, Kalevala. Annette Lyon has been a newspaper and magazine editor, but her first love has always been writing fiction. Lyon has a degree in English from BYU and is a USA Today best-selling author of over a dozen books, including Band of Sisters, A Chocolate Cookbook, A Grammar Guide, and is one of the four co-authors of the Newport Ladies Book Club series. Here's Rachel and Annette Lyon. We're in the studio with Annette today. Welcome, Annette. Thank you. Annette, you just published a very interesting book, a very wonderful work of fiction called Songbreaker. And I am just interested to start out by asking you, how did this book come to be? <laughs> what, what were the origins of this book? So I have a, a very strong Finnish background. My mother was born and raised in Finland. Um, my father has spent some time there. He knows Finnish. He taught Finnish literature um, as a professor. I grew up eating Finnish foods and hearing all these things. And then when I was 10 years old, my family moved there for three years and I attended public school. And so it's just it literally is just a, it's in my blood on several levels. Um, and so 
I have written one novel set in Finland before, um, but it was a contemporary romance, kind of bordering on women's fiction. Um, and I hadn't really thought about doing something on this level, um, but several years ago, I got to go back to Finland for the first time in 25 years or so. And it really felt like I was coming home. And on the airplane, I had read, uh, I just finished Jessica Day George's um, book. It's a Norwegian fairy tale, um, Sun and Moon, Ice and Snow. Is that right? I Mm -hmm. I almost get the words mixed up. Um, And I closed it and it was just beautiful and haunting and enchanting. And I just loved it. And then for the rest of our trip, um, I got to see all my old haunts and see other places and show my husband. This is the school I went to. And now let's go to the Sibelius Monument and let's go to all these things. I couldn't help but have this voice in the back of my head saying, you need to write something that's historical, that's that's finished, uniquely finished and not contemporary. And by the time I came home, I decided I want to write something based on the Galavala, which is the Finnish a national epic. It's, I think, you know, the Greeks, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad and that kind of thing. That's, this is the Finnish book of, of their mythology, um, which I had grown up hearing some of the stories here and there and has some paintings that were around the house. And so I didn't know all the stories, but I remembered one in particular that dealt with a young woman named Aino. And how she was cursed to have to marry this old wizard man and trying to escape the situation. And so once we got home, I'm like, I need to get the, a, a copy of the Kalevala for myself in the best English translation that there is, um, which mimics the Finnish rhythms and, and whatnot, which is fabulous. And I wanted to write a novelization of her story. And um, it was very different. I worked on it for a little while and it just, it wasn't quite gelling and I put it aside for other projects. And then, you know, oh, maybe a year ago, I just had this sense of it's time. It is time to bring it back out. I think that's really amazing. I think sometimes when we put labels on books where we say, oh, it's children's, it's middle grade, it's YA, it's adult, we actually prevent readership in some ways. And the one thing I love about this book is it really is readable by a wider audience than any label might yeah. Put on it, absolutely. Um, so, how do and you? It's not like there's anything R-rated in no, it. No, it's, it's not. not like... <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, there's lots of yeah. things where people, you know, there's even some children's books where we're talking about, you know, child marriage or you know, other yeah. kinds of things. So, I mean, I don't think the marriage thing alone is no, is an yeah. issue. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you, as a writer, deal with those kinds of categories, and how do you make sure that you're not letting those categories? impact your own needs and voice as an author? That's that's a really good question because it, it is a challenge. It's definitely um, – and, and part of the reason is when I first – the original draft is was much shorter and I thought, well, this is too short to be an adult book by industry standards. Um, and that's, oh, it's more of a middle grade length and this and that. And, you know, during revisions it has expanded, but it's, as you know, it's not that yeah. long. Um, and so – that's what that's a real big challenge because on the one hand you want people to find your book and therefore you almost have to put some kind of label on it but the minute you put a label on it you're excluding it from other things so that's yeah like going to a bookstore where would you find x i don't know you know so in some ways amazon's been useful because then you can hopefully like add keywords and tags that will say this this book is similar to this book or this is the, you know books that people who like this author might like this or so, that kind of thing but um but yeah it's it's tough because you know, if you're trying to write to the industry, it's not going to come out good and what's true to your heart. 
And I, you know, I've learned that the hard way. So um, you just have to write what you write and then see where it what box it'll fit into. But and if it doesn't fit into a pretty tidy box, you can go forward anyway. I, you know, I remember hearing Neil Gaiman talk about, you know, how he was surprised that he won um, the Newberry for the graveyard book. He goes, that's for that's an award for children's books. I just wrote a book. And in the UK, I guess it's published as an adult yeah. book. He's like, I just wrote a book. I don't. If you call it children, that's fine. But that's not, you know. And he writes a huge variety of things, so yeah. it's that's a constant challenge. And I feel like I've, I've I've had to kind of reinvent myself several times over my career, and had I've had these identity crises. You know, when I, I was asked to write a, a chocolate cookbook, and I was like, oh, that'd be fun, sure. And then nine months later, I was losing my mind and wondering if I'd forgotten how to write fiction. And if I do, what what do I want to write next? And I just was floundering for quite some time. Um, but I, apparently, that's not too uncommon among writers. Sometimes we flounder a bit, and that's okay. Well, I'm glad if you flounder, you find a good place that brings you to books like Songbreaker, because I think mm-hmm. that that's, that's a really cool place to be. You. As you were writing, what did you find to be the most challenging piece of this novel? Oh, that's a really good question. Some of it was um, figuring out part of the end, because in like in like Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales or Grimm's fairy tales, the originals tend to have very sad, horrible endings. <laughs> you know, little yes, Mermaid <laughs> ends up with foam on the sea and this kind of thing. Um, and so this fairy tale didn't have the happiest of endings either. I think it's, it's happier than The Little Mermaid, but it's still not where I would want to have a reader close the book and go, oh, that was satisfying because no. So I had to invent a, you know, a way for that, for her to f- fix her own situation and get out of it. Um, and then part of it was the situation she ends up in is one where she is pretty powerless. So I had to make sure I, I planted certain things along the way so that she's not just being saved by other people that, um, yeah, you know, but it's trying to figure out how to get her out of the mess because the original story didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I loved that was easy in the sense is that the, the idea of a girl being forced to marry someone else it's, it's very much something that modern day people are against or the modern day readers would not like that. And therefore they would connect with her immediately. So in that sense, the basic theme of the story is no, I will make my own choices. You can't force me to do this thing um, um, is I think a very modern value that we have. So I think hopefully readers will appreciate that. Well, I think they definitely will. As we close our conversation today, tell us what you do wish, maybe. What is one of the things that you wish a reader will take away from reading this novel? I hope they had a fun ride. I hope um, it makes them want to read other things that are similar and other fairy tales and other, and maybe learn more about the Nordic countries and that kind of thing. But primarily, um, just open up their mind to a new era and a new place and just learning new things. So I think that we just can't have enough of that and just have a good read. You know, that's kind of the bottom line. I love that. Let's just all have a good read. Yes. <laughs> it's a really interesting book. And Thank I you. think will lead readers to a, on a great adventure and then to other great other books, like you said, other great retellings of fairy tales, because that's a really strong genre right now. It so is. thanks for adding to it. We Yay. appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Annette. Uh-huh. Award-winning author Annette Lyon talking about her newest book, Songbreaker, based on a Finnish folktale. We finish up the show with Rob Sanders, BYU radio producer, who shares some thoughts about his love and enjoyment of audiobooks, a form that often makes reading more accessible.
I have never read Harry Potter. I have not read a page of the Harry Potter books. Okay, well, maybe a page, but I have not read an entire Harry Potter book. Well, that's not true. I've read one Harry Potter book, but of the seven, I've only read one Harry Potter book. Now, you say, but how could you miss out? How could you go see the films without reading the books? Well, I found a way to cheat. Two magical words. Cliff notes. No. Jim Dale. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. J.K. Rowling. One. Now, obviously, that's not Jim Dale. That's some text-to-speech engine pretending to be Jim Dale because for legal reasons I can't actually play you Jim Dale's voice, but you get the drift. And even if I could legally play you a clip from Jim Dale's narration of the Harry Potter series, which, by the way, is fantastic... His character voices sound better than the actors who play the actual characters in the Warner Brothers films. I couldn't play you that fantastic narration because I bought them all on cassette. It was back 15 years ago and my car had a cassette deck, so that's what I bought. But it entered me into a magical fantasy world that I normally wouldn't have cared about. I'm not really a fantasy guy. But almost as if I were a child and somebody were reading the story to me, well, then I got sucked right into it. Now I can see it. I'm probably in the minority here. There's a never-ending list of people out there, maybe you, who dream of one of those rainy days where you can sit by the fireplace, you know, if you have one, and curl up on a nice, comfortable, easy chair, assuming you have one, and read an interesting book, if you can find one. But that's not me. I'm busy. I got places to be. I like sunshiny days. I got things to do. Perhaps if you're in the minority like I am, you find yourself flipping open a book, wanting to read it so badly. It could be the new Harry Potter sequel, compelling story, and I find my eyes line by line, line by line, working their way to the bottom of the page. And soon I realize I didn't actually comprehend anything on the page because I got distracted thinking about other things. Nothing on this page is moving. Yawn. I'd just gone through the mechanics of reading, but hadn't actually read anything. But with an audiobook, I can multitask. I made it through six Harry Potter books, eating frozen waffles and drawing. Or eating frozen waffles and changing the brakes on a car. Or eating frozen waffles and forgetting to take a boombox out of the back of the car on a hot summer day. the magical Harry Potter-filled summer of 2002 came to an end. Fall rolled in. I was taking AP English, and they assigned all kinds of horrible books you'd never actually want to read unless somebody made you. Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it was written when? 1850. Thank heavens for those audiobooks in the library. I never would have graduated. I mean, the Scarlet Letter. Who wants to read that for fun? But now I know it's not cool to yell, in the face of somebody who's, you know, just made a few bad life choices. Boo is a reference to Hester having to wear the scarlet letter A on her clothes. And sometimes the people who are booing the loudest are the ones who caused the problem in the first place. Like Arthur Dimsdale, who on paper would have said, I, your pastor, whom you so reverence and trust, utterly a pollution and a lie. My eyes would have just sailed right past that quote. But to hear it out loud, to hear... I, Arthur Dimsdale, your pastor, whom you reverence and trust, am utterly a pollution and a lie. You hear it in your ear. The quote's meaningful. The book's exciting. Or maybe it's just me. 
There's visual learners, reading and writing learners, kinesthetic learners, and auditory learners. Maybe we ear people just like our audiobooks a little bit more. The Phoenix Conspiracy by Richard L. Sanders. Book one. So when my brother hit it big, well, I didn't really hit it big. He hit it medium, selling his sci-fi novel on Amazon. And I found myself, I didn't read it. I mean, come on, my brother just hit it medium on Amazon. And I couldn't bring myself to sit down and read his book. Because the pages don't move, and they're slow, and they're boring. And then the audiobook came out, and I was glued to his story. Her narrow eyes shot him a hateful glare. She'd been a faithful friend these past several years, and deceived. They say blood's thicker than water, but it's not thicker than paper. Thanks, audiobooks, for helping me graduate high school, college, and preserve my family relationships. Rob Sanders, BYU radio producer, talking about the magic of audiobooks, reading a book through listening. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.